all doing? Good? Yeah, it's good to be together. I know that on a regular basis, we're like scrolling through updates online and trying to figure out what's going to happen and what we can do and what we can't do. And I just want to let you know that your pastors are doing that too. <laughs> and, um, and we're all trying to figure it out. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Danielle. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. Um, it is really good to be with you all. I've missed you so, and I'm continuing to be, I don't know if this is you, but so deeply grateful. Pastor Marcus, thank you for your prayer of just walking us through gratitude for all of the things we have to be grateful for, including this space where we can be outside and not be as concerned and worried. And it's windy, but that's good, right? All of the beautiful, wonderful things that we have here. So thank you for that. And thank you all for being here. I don't take it for granted, I guess, right? Every time we get to be here together, even with masks, even only elbow bumping or whatever it is, I just am deeply grateful. So thank you for being here with us and making that possible. And for all those on Zoom, uh, if you ever want to turn your cameras on, we can see your cute faces. And we will, I'm going to continue to wave to you. And so I'm just, all of you, I'm so happy when I see your names. So everybody, every once in a while, you can direct your attention over to the, the included Spark community here. And if you're so inclined and you're really techie, you can just, there we go. Yeah. Hi, Julia. Woohoo. Yay. We're happy to see you. Oh, that was it. I totally get it. You don't want a whole group of people watching you watch something. Um, but thank you for saying hi for a few moments. Um, but if you also ever, like towards the end of service, want to jump on and say hi, just get the Zoom link going and you can do it from either there on the camera or the camera and, um, and do it on your phone as well. I had fun doing that last week. And um, whether you're able to be here or not, uh, you are spark and we're glad to be together. Let's pray and we'll get started in our chapter 20 of Luke. Jesus, thank you so much again for today and for the presence of your spirit amongst us. Would you bind us closer together as you bind us closer to you in the study of your word and through the continued walking out of this story that has been handed down to us from generation to generation and that we will continue to hand down to the generation after us. Teach us how to live like you, love like you, learn like you, how to walk like you, Jesus. And right now, would you just open our hearts to your holy words um, that we might be drawn closer to you. We ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. For those of you who are geeky uh, like me, you can either open up your Bibles online on your phones or you can also grab the NIV, the nearly inerrant version. Um, Thank you. Um, so it's right up here if you want it. I'm going to be reading actually from the NRSV so you can compare notes, all of those kinds of things. And just a quick, quick note for those of you who don't know, when you open up your Bible and you see like a chapter marking, chapter 20, and then verse markings, and if you see headers, like right here it'll say the authority of Jesus questioned is header number one. Um, none of that was in the original text. So you can decide to change those things. And that's, if you take garden to garden with me, where we study through the whole Bible, that's going to be one of my next exercises, um, asking you all to change the, um, you be the editors of your nearly inerrant version and change. So it's like for John, right? Instead of the woman caught in adultery, how about the men caught in hypocrisy, right? Or just change that up. So yeah, sound good? Okay, so you can get out your little pencil and mark it up. But here today, um, I actually am going to agree the authority of Jesus questioned. And so the title of today's message is By What Authority? So previously, last week in Luke, uh, chapter 19, um, 
Pastor Kevin walked us through the discussion of the cleansing of the temple. Um, Jesus' sort of entry, triumphal entry, we call it, or Palm Sunday often, but it was also Lamb Selection Day. And it was the beginning of the preparations for the festival of Passover, which was a freedom festival. Does anybody know what everybody was celebrating? What were they celebrating? Freedom from what? Egypt and slavery. Good job. It's an open book test, so you can, again, continue to get your mind. Um, So they're celebrating freedom from exile, freedom from an oppressive regime. Um, And they are starting to, of course, as a crowd, living under Roman and oppression and rule, make some connections here. So Jesus has entered in on Lamb Selection Day into Jerusalem. And as soon as he enters in, and by the way, they pick up these really interesting symbols, these palm branches, and they start waving it. And I wish as a kid just thought, that was super like nice and kind of like, I don't know, Egyptian or something. And um, instead, now we know, of course, that the palm branch had become a symbol of um, political independence from the Maccabean revolt. And so they are waving these very interesting symbols, uh, worshiping Jesus, excited about Jesus going in. And then Jesus does this thing and he walks in to the temple and he cleanses it. Pastor Kevin talked us through last week about when we think about God's house and we think about who it belongs to. There's something that Jesus is doing here in the presence of the temple and in the presence of all the people who are there that's kind of reordering how the system has been working. So he goes in, uh, and in the meantime, he also weeps over Jerusalem. Remember that part? So he enter, he's entering in on the Mount of Olives. He sees Jerusalem. He weeps. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you, only you knew, right? Like what would give you life, but the way that you are doing this right now is not working. Weeps and then enters in and cleanses the temple. That's all been happening with really no break now to what we're going to see in Luke chapter 20. So let's go ahead and read our text. So one day Jesus is there still in that week up in the temple on the Temple Mount platform in Jerusalem as he was teaching the people in the temple and telling the good news. So there's the gospel word we're excited about. The chief priests and the scribes came with the elders and said to him, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? Who gave you this authority? Like, by what right can you do this? And so he answers them with a very good uh, rabbinic and Socratic model. Um, He answers them with a question. He goes, okay, I'll ask you a question. You've asked me a question, I'll ask you a question. And you tell me, did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? And if we say of human origin, all the people who are watching all of this happen will stone us, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answer, we don't know. Right? They give an answer, we don't know where it came from. And then Jesus said to them, okay, well, then I'm not going to tell you either. So, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Now, in just this first few moments, we see that there is some tension, don't we? Right? We see that there's an answer in the question that Jesus has asked, but also not an answer. So, maybe some people are like, oh, okay. So, the inference here is that Jesus is getting his authority from John right? Because he's like, well, where did John get his? So that's where I got mine, maybe. And then they're like, but wait, was John's from God or was it from the people? And everybody has a theological debate at this point and a a challenging belief that they're going to have to question for themselves, right? Because this is not based on empirical evidence, as many Christian apologists would like you to believe. 
Um, this is a faith question. Who, where did John get it from? Who was John and how did he do all of this? So then Jesus is like, okay, let's leave that there. I've given you my question and then my non-response. Um, and now I'll tell you a story. So he's going to talk now about a few other people in the story. So, so far in, hold, wait for it. Okay, in Luke 20 so far, we have a few people already entering the scene. We have the crowd. We have, so we have the people watching. We have disciples there. We have chief priests. We have elders. So, you know, old wise folk. Uh, we have scribes, people who are very learned and able to write down the text. Uh, the chief priests, by the way, how did they get to become the chief priest? Does anybody know? Money. That's right. How are they supposed to become the chief priest? Go all the way back to Torah, to Moses. What's that? No, both. <laughs> Is that what she said? Vote. No. Uh, Yes, a family lineage, right? The line of Aaron, yeah? And then they would figure out, and so maybe there was some consensus building, but they were supposed to come from the line of Aaron, but at this point, it is Caiaphas, and it is to the highest bidder. Where did the chief priest's garments live when they want to be looking like the chief priest and the high priest? Where did those garments live? Where did the high priest garments live? The Romans hold them for them, yeah, so just so we know who's really in charge. Okay, so all of those players are there, and then Jesus tells this story. He begins to tell people this parable, a bland planted a vineyard and leased it to the tenants and went to another country for a long time. This, by the way, was common practice in the ancient Near East and in first century Israel where, and, and the Roman world where you might have a land and you would lease it to the tenants and then you'd come back. Okay, so none of this is, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we know this kind of story. But remember the players here, we have an owner of a vineyard and somebody who has leased that vineyard to the tenants. Now already the people listening who are having scripture soaked minds would be connecting the story to Isaiah chapter five, which is about how Israel is a vineyard. At least that amongst a bunch of other things too. Okay. He leases to a tenant, went to another country for a long time. And when the season came, he sent a slave, a servant slave to the tenants in order that they might give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. Now at this point, if you owned the vineyard, you'd be like, I have, um, I have a problem. And uh, we have some employee relations issues. We have to call HR, bring them on in and try to do some things. But um, this is kind of where hopefully the analogy and the allegory falls apart because I hope nobody would send somebody back in. But instead here in this story, we have now the owner of that vineyard going, okay, I'll send, an send another. He sends another one in. They also insult him, send him away, beat him, insult him, send him away empty handed. He sends a third. This one they also wounded and threw out. So the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result, right? Um, and so when the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. Nothing is indicated to the vineyard owner that that would be the case. But this is the story Jesus is telling, right? And so then he says, the tenants see the son. They discuss it amongst themselves that this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard, killed him. And then what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they hear this, they're like, heaven forbid, right? This is a terrible story. Why, why all of those things, Jesus? Like that's, that is difficult, right? 
But he looked at them and said, then what does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. And when the scribes and chief priests realized that he had told the parable against them, they wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people. Okay, so now we have a whole other issue. At the beginning, it was like, who gave you the authority? How do we know you're supposed to be here? Some discussion of John was made. Maybe it's from John. Maybe it's from heaven. We don't really know. And so then Jesus tells a story about somebody who owns land, somebody who has trusted the vineyard to the leaders, to the people, but then nobody has been trusted, right? Whether it's the prophets that are being sent, and ultimately then the beloved son is sent. And here we have some foreshadowing, don't we? Right? We're like, I think I, think I might know what's coming towards the end of the week. Okay, at the same time, Jesus does not suggest that just because you are rejecting him, then you have some high ground. It's like, oh, and by the way, if you think you have a higher ground right now because you're rejecting me in this little dialogue that we're having, just so you know, the rejection of me is also going to be your downfall. So whether you've welcomed me in or downfall, there's some problems here at this moment. Who is in charge? And we have some more authority conversations, and they're afraid of the people. Okay, let's look at the next thing. So at this point, they're like, let's get Rome involved, right? This isn't going well for us. So now they're going to watch him and they send spies who pretend to be honest in order to trap him by what he said. So as to hand him over to the jurisdiction. And here we have an authority question again, the authority of the governor. So who's really in charge? Now we know that they know that Rome is truly in charge. And who's the governor here? Does anybody know? Pontius Pilate. So they ask him, teacher, we know that you are right in what you say and teach. Does that sound about right? And you show deference to no one. I think that might be the only thing that they actually mean in that sentence, right? You don't care about any of us here in this room. You don't care about all the work that we've done to get into the positions that we have, to have built up the systems of existence that we have in this place, right? We're worried about these people, we, but we know that you are angry with us and you've said some harsh words, right? There's some issues. You know, you show deference to no one, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So this is the, it's a trap. No, my husband, Pastor Kevin and Phoebe have been spending a lot of time watching Star Wars um, over and over. So as soon as I hear this, I'm like, it's a trap. It's a trap. They're going to set Jesus up. Okay. And here's the trap. Is it lawful, they ask him, for us to pay taxes to the emperor, to Caesar or not? So stop right there. Remind yourself, where is Jesus? What are they asking him? They're, they're here at the temple up at the Temple Mount, and I don't know if you see right here, see this big building right here? That's the Antonia Fortress, and that's where Rome is. Like, that's where Pilate can hang. That's where the soldiers live. Can you see what they can see all the time? All of all of Israel, all of the Jews, as they come in for their freedom festival, as all the teaching is happening here in the Temple Mount, as all the sacrifices are being made, as all the worship would be happening, they can watch this ragtag group of Judeans that they just cannot control. And they've already had a look on over into this freedom festival, the Antonio Fortress right there, looking in, 
Rome knows that they have already had uprisings within the living memory of all the people that are there on that Temple Mount platform as Jesus is teaching. They're like, you know what? There was this guy, Judas the Galilean. He's mentioned in the book of Acts, by the way. He was killed along with his two sons in 6 CE because he led an anti-tax rebellion against Rome. So when they ask him this question, they know that they're pushing buttons. They know that they are dragging up a thing that many people before have been crucified for, executed for. He was killed, Judas the Galilean, by Rome. His kids, two sons were killed, and his surviving son, Menachem, became the leader of the Sicarii until he was slain by the high priestly party, not by Rome, but by the priests. Do you remember what the Sicarii are? They have those curved swords, and they would sneak up and sort of try to start a zealot revolt. So all of this has happened in the living memory of the people that are there. And they're like, hey, by the way, do you think we should pay taxes? <laughs> oh, Rome, don't pay attention to that big fortress that's sitting right there as they look over and everybody's listening to everything you're going to say, right? And there's the governor that we'd like to get involved at this point. And we found an inscription stone at Caesarea Maritima that says Pontius Pilate. So we know that guy's good. Like, he's very reasonable. He's not going to have any trouble He's not reasonable at all. He's been called back to Rome because he cannot really keep control and he's already had way too much bloodshed on his hands. I don't know that that particularly was him. That's an actor from a movie. Okay, so they ask this question. Is it lawful us to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Who's in authority? Again, they're asking. Not just who gave you Jesus authority, but who do you submit under? Whose authority are you going to submit under? Are you going to submit under Rome's authority? He perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, which also means that he doesn't have one. So he doesn't have this coin in his hand. And he asked the people who are trying to trap him in this, you show me the coin. And they have one and they shouldn't have one because it has an image on it and an inscription. And we're going to show you in just a second. He says, show me a denarius, whose head and whose title does it bear? And they said, the emperor's. So this coin has the image of Caesar, of the ruler, of the emperor. And on the coin, on the inscription, it says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So it is claiming divinity and leadership, even of like the priesthood, right? This is this coin, the image of God, the image of a person right there. Now, does anybody know, if you are a good first century Judean there at the temple, particularly, are you supposed to have an image of somebody claiming divinity and leadership of, no, you're not supposed to, particularly on the Temple Mount, you should go exchange that somewhere else and get a different coin, right? Show me a coin. So immediately there's trouble because they've produced one. And then Jesus says this, then give to Caesar, give to the emperor, the things that are the emperor's and to God, the things that are God's. That's a good answer. Because it demands that they determine who is the authority. Now, what you should know that's pretty interesting is that this actually might not be as like passive as it sounds. In Second, in 1 Maccabees chapter 2, 68, which tells us the story of the Maccabean revolt that kicked out an oppressive ruler, the Seleucids, when they were desecrating the temple and then cleansed the temple and where the palm branches became that political symbol. In 1 Maccabees, as they were getting ready for this revolt, 
This is what Mattathias said to Judas Maccabeus and his brothers. Pay back the Gentiles in full and obey the commands of the law. It's got a similar ring. You should pay in full what belongs to Caesar and pay in full what belongs to God. N.T. Wright actually suggests that that it would be the better reworking and framing. He said when he was doing his translation, he didn't quite have the courage to get all the way to translate exactly like that. But he believes that Jesus is deliberately echoing back to that revolt. Which is hopeful news for the people that are there who really want this insurrection to happen. To overthrow Rome and to get Rome out again. And these Maccabean revolt that would happen that brought us Hanukkah. Right? And the rededication of the temple, the cleansing of the temple and the rededication. And here are the coinage. Do you guys see the difference of the coins? The Maccabean coins look very different than what we see Caesar declaring and saying. In his book, When God Became King, N.T. Wright says, maybe Jesus is saying this. Perhaps it's time for God, whose image is on every human being and whose inscription is written across the pages of creation and the story of Israel to receive his due. So maybe there's something more going on here. So as the question again is pushed, under whose authority, Jesus? Who gave you the authority to do this? And we don't really like what you're giving us. So now we're going to try to get Rome involved because they have authority over you and over us. We have to go check out our clothes every morning and return them every night. Something else is happening here. They continue on then in verse 26. They were not able... And they were not able in the presence of the people to trap him by what he said. And being amazed by his answer, they became silent. So now we have in this series, Jesus not submitting under the authority of chief priests, leaders, elders, scribes, or Rome. And now we're going to have enter the Sadducees. Now, this is the first time Luke mentions the Sadducees in his gospel. And does anybody remember what the Sadducees are all about? Does anybody know why they were sad, you see? They don't believe in the resurrection, right? They do not believe in a bodily resurrection, which tells you by the fact, by the way, the fact that that made them an outlier meant that most people did. Most Jews did believe in a bodily resurrection, right? They believed in that. And you can hear those echoes in Maccabee as well. The Sadducees also did not believe in angels or demons. They were very concerned with the power structures that were present for them at the temple and kind of working their way up the line. And they also did not believe in the full inspiration of the Bible. They only believed in the first five books of Moses. So they have an authority question too. Some Sadducees, those who say there's no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up the children for his brother. Now, now they're going to try to trap him in the resurrection question, okay? There were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. The second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. And finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Right? This is, they're like, feel like this is great. Now they're referencing the Leverite law, which requires you to sort of continue to sustain the family line so that somebody doesn't die without an heir. Now this is, of course, implausible, but they're putting, pushing the argument to the nth degree to try to force Jesus to agree that this is absurd, that there would be a rec- resurrection, because how are we going to negotiate all these funny details like whose wife does she belong to in that time in heaven? 
Questions I'm sure God asks all the time when God thinks about the new heavens and the new earth coming crashing together. All right. So verse, I'm joking, of course, I don't think so. Uh, Verse 34, Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. It's sort of, I mean, this is like a new creation and things are different and we're not, we're not in these same systems as we were before. Nobody's dying. Maybe we don't have to procreate anymore. I don't know. Maybe it's a population control issue. I'm just joking. Um, Okay, but he's just saying, basically, this is a non-issue in the conversation that we're having. Indeed, he says, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are like children of God being children of the resurrection. Now, at this point, everybody else who believes in the resurrection is like, that's right, that's awesome, good job, Jesus. See, we didn't like you earlier, but now we like you now because we don't like those people. And if you remember last week, Kevin was talking a lot about how when you think about God's house, there are things that maybe we've invited in or things that we have kept out maybe we shouldn't be the gatekeepers of that anymore. And so here we have a conversation and a debate of people would like to vote one another off of the platform so that they can continue to have things go by the way they want. And they have a question. They have an authority question. Like, are you going to submit to the authority of Moses? Because we don't see a lot of resurrection in Moses. Or are you going to submit to what you perceive to be the authority of the fullness of the scriptures? Jesus continues, the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed. He's like, oh, wait, you think Moses doesn't talk about resurrection? Let me help you. Um, In the story about the bush where he speaks of the Lord, it's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's like, that was present tense. So now he is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. And to all of, to him, for to him, all of them are alive. And so then some of the scribes are like, yes, answered, teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him any other questions. So all of these moments here at the temple, all of these little conversations, all about whose authority are we going to submit under? Whose text are we going to submit under? Which group do we want to be under? And how, Jesus, are you getting the right to do any of this? And they're asking the question, like, is your authority based upon what you believe? Do you believe the right things? Have you decided that you check all the right lists? Have you clicked all the right boxes? I believe, I grew up in the Lutheran church. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is only son, our Lord, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Click all the right boxes. Have you decided who's in and who's out to Kevin's point last week? Do you believe in Moses? Do you believe in the fullness of scriptures? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you not believe in the resurrection? Let's figure out whose authority are you under and how do we sort you through? How do we figure you out, Jesus? So verse 41, then Jesus says to them, how can they say that the Messiah is David's son? So he's going to push on it even further. For David himself says that in the books of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I'll make your enemies your footstool. So David thus calls him Lord. How can he be his son? And in the hearing of the people, he said to all the disciples. Now, this is just after the scribes have been like, well done. We really liked that answer. Good job. He's like, hey, by the way, watch out for those guys. He says it in front of everybody. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus has made everybody mad, except for maybe the people, except for maybe the disciples. If Rome was listening closely, Rome is concerned. They just watched this guy lead a parade of rebel rousers, rebels from that Galilean region, come on down through on the Mount of Olives, which we call Mount Palm Sunday, on that Mount of Olives come down with like 
patriotic flag symbols with their palm branches, come on in, reenact the whole Hanukkah dedication thing, cleanse the temple, kicked out the buyers and the sellers, and then do this all in this festival of freedom when Rome is looking over and in charge. Rome's concerned too. Everybody's a bit concerned. Now, by what authority is Jesus doing all of these things? Who gave him this authority? These temple encounters with priests and scribes and elders and Romans and Sadducees and the people and the disciples, when they have these questions, you guys, they're hostile. These questions are hostile. And they're demonstrating over and over again the distance between the leadership and the people. The distance between the leadership and the people is on display here. How the temple system works, how it operates. Do you know a record of the debts of everyone was kept there at the temple? So every time you would go to worship the Lord, you're reminded of how much you owed and your fees and your taxes. That gap between the people and the leadership is on display and being pushed further and further in each one of these encounters. And they too are asking the question, how is Jesus doing this and under what authority is he doing it? But their questions, as Jesus continue, as they ask Jesus each one of these questions, we've noted that they're not simple questions. They can't be answered with a simple yes or no. If Jesus does so, it'll create a problem. So he does, he answers these questions with wisdom and with nuance and with hints. Maybe there were winks. We don't know, but we know he's doing it with such wisdom that a riot is not caused that day. By what authority does Jesus do these things? By John, the prophets, heaven, Moses, David, scribes, priests, Sadducees, Rome. They're all asking this ultimate question, Jesus, who are you? Are you just some guy from the Galilee? Are you just leading a rebellion? We've had those before. It does not go well for us. What gives you the right to come here and disrupt all of our systems, all of our power systems, all of the ways where we've sorted out that each one of us gets a tiny little piece of the pie while Rome looks over and lets us play our power games? By what authority, Jesus, do you do this? And who are you? So I think all of us actually are living in submission to different authorities, whether we'd like to recognize it or not. All of us are living in submission to some various authority. We understand our worlds by these authorities, by systems and powers that we all agree to live by. Have you guys ever pulled up to a four-way stop and thought, this could be chaos? But we've all agreed that the person to the right (laughs) of the first right will go next. And we all live by that rule. Now, that's a good system. Thank goodness, right? But there are things that we're all participating in on a regular basis. And we find ways to pull people in and out of what we have our, to keep our own power, to keep our own systems present so we can operate the way we want. And I understand completely why people are very concerned about this guy that just came in from the Galilee. And he's just disrupting everything. I understand why they're asking him, who gave you the right to come on in here and cleanse this place and start using these rebellion symbols in front of Rome? Who gave you the right to do this? Who gave you the right to take in not just the words of Moses, but all of the words? Who gave you the right and the authority to continue to lead and teach and believe the way you do? And maybe some of us have asked those different authority in and out questions as well. What translation do you use? What's your source for news? I heard somebody ask that of Kevin the other day. Where do you get your news from? You know, there's like a thing behind that. No, but like, it was like a, like, and then as he answered, I won't give his answers. I was like, oh, they're going to think this. Because you could tell 
by the way the person was asking, who's your authority? How did you arrive at the conclusion you arrived at? And it must be because you listen to these talking heads or you read this magazine or this newspaper or this one. Did you know? I mean, we've already done that the last four or five, six years and longer. We all have family members and we'll say, well, they watch this station or they listen to this person. And everyone goes, oh, right? Well, they're the Sadducees. No, they're the scribes. They're the elders. They're the chief priests. We've all decided what authority we want to submit unto. How about when we all look online and we, this week we're like, okay, what did the CDC say? Right? That's an authority. I'm not saying we shouldn't listen to them. I think we should listen to them, but I'm just saying not everybody agrees with that position. Some people are really in and want their Fauci ouchie and other people are like, no, that is mind control. So, um, you know, we have our authorities that we're all listening to and submitting under. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you a priest or a Levite or a Sadducee? Do you like Rome? Do you not like, who do you follow on Insta? Are you, or are you still on Facebook? Right? Ins and out and authorities. And where do you work? What are sports? Where do you get your power from? Now, years ago in 2017, I came across this article in the Atlantic about how power causes brain damage. And this teacher, professor in Berkeley, Dr. Keltner, now we already say Berkeley, we're like, oh, well then, okay. But uh, he wrote a book called The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. And he said that what we've learned is that when we feel powerful, the empathy regions of our brain disengage and we suddenly become impulsive and we behave inappropriately and we're more likely to swear and we generally lose touch with other people. These power systems, Jesus walks into them and everybody at that Temple Mount platform has carved out their own little system. And it's not, it's just, it's a very precarious balancing act that they're all playing. I'm going to pretend I'm in charge, even though I have to get my clothes from Rome and turn them back in at the end of the day, right? I'm going to pretend that I'm in charge, even though the group that I'm in will only let me believe this or trust this source or read from this particular book of the Bible and argue from that particular place. Ultimately, the debate over Jesus's authority is a theological one and can neither be proved or disproved. No empirical evidence nor any argument can persuade. And professional apologists and atheists always speak to their own choirs. Have you ever noticed that? We've already decided what we want to believe. And belief in Jesus comes as a gift. It's not something that somebody can be argued into. It's not something that we can be persuaded by. Maybe there's been persuasions and experiences that we've had, but ultimately the belief that we have in Christ and the authority that Jesus is walking into comes as a gift. Now, Jesus himself too, in the book of Matthew, will ask a similar question. Who do you say that I am? As he's led his disciples all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. And some are saying, some say the prophets. Some say John back from the dead. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And he said, who do you say that Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. I love that verse because it makes me feel constantly like it is not my job to persuade anybody about the authority of Jesus in this world. 
That as Jesus stepped into all of those different systems and powers, and this conversation, by the way, will continue for the next chapter. He will continue to step into the temple system and call out authorities and powers and systems and abuses. He'll drive out, as he did those money changers, he's driving out arguments. He's driving, he's going to call out and lift up a widow next week as we look in John, uh, Luke chapter 21. As Jesus looks into those and disrupts those power systems, he's still pushing the question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do we think Jesus is? Now, maybe based upon our personality type, some of us might say that Jesus is Lord because I've had a personal experience with him and I felt a particular way. Somebody else might say, I think he's Lord because I've read the books and I've become compelled as I've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the whole of the scripture. I've searched out several and they've done those arguments and that's how their personality type. How have we come to the decision where we've decided to let Jesus be in authority over our lives? Who gave him this authority in your life and in mine? Who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? And what is his role in our lives? Now, recently, um, I saw on probably some social media site that I won't say because then that way you won't have to put me in a box. I saw on social media um, people asking the question, tell me you went to church without telling me you went to church. And there were a whole bunch of responses that were actually quite heartbreaking. Like terrible, bad Christian church behavior, right? Like, I, I'll tell you I went to church because I was voted off the island for X, Y, and Z, right? For whatever it was. And I sat there, I was so sad because I'll tell you, I'll tell you how you can know I went to church without knowing that I went to church. I grew up not knowing one single day without the love of Jesus in my life. From the very day I was little, I only was told that God loved me. And I was walking around like the father is fond of me. Like he has my picture in his wallet and he brags about me to all of the other kids as he brags about, like, I just walked around believing that Jesus was love and that Jesus loved me and that he could forgive me and he could give me a new life. We had um, public confession every week in the Lutheran church. And when you were young, you couldn't take communion yet, right? So you could only go forward and kneel at the rail. I'm looking at my Lutheran friend, kneel at the rail and wait. And then the pastor would come and pass you over. You didn't get the wafer and the juice, but you got a little blessing on your head. And I remember every time I would go and I would say things like, oh man, I'm so sorry. I was mean to my sister and I cheated on that test. I peeled off all the stickers on the Rubik's cube and then lied that I solved it. So like all of, yeah. Um, So the things that you could confess at that rail, and then you just could pop up and start again. I grew up believing there were a thousand second chances that there was grace and mercy for all and that we could all love and treat one another that way. And the day I decided I wanted to live under that authority and under that rule and that kingdom, I was about 10 years old and I was at Mount Hermon Redwood Camp and I didn't walk forward with all the other kids. It was like, anytime you tell me to do something, I'm not going to do it. Um, So I went and I sat by myself and I opened up my Bible and I was sitting on a tennis court and I made sure my, I sat cross-legged right at the corner where the white lines met. And as I opened up my Bible and started to read, I kind of just had that experience, right? Where I was like, I know Jesus is real. And I also know I'm not in charge. And that was the authority moment for me. It's like, okay, you're in charge. I got it. 
I'm not in charge, you're in charge, and I get to serve you. I get to be part of a kingdom that you're building that has disrupted these other power systems, that has disrupted these other authority systems. And you know that that was proven out very quickly in my life after that. I was very excited about Jesus, and I went home, and I told my family that I was going to be a pastor when I grew up, and they were like, oh, no, that's a terrible idea. You will be poor forever. And then I told my other family that was really into Jesus that I would wanted to be a pastor when I grew up, and they said, oh, no, you can't do that because you're a woman. And I was like, well, that can't be right. So immediately the authority systems were questioned. And I remember telling my mom, I love you and I will obey you and submit to you. But in this case, you're wrong and Jesus is over you. So he's the greater authority. And I remember feeling something break at that moment too. Because he had the authority in my life to lead and guide and direct those steps. And the people that said I couldn't, that broke too. It's like, well, this is what I feel like God is calling me and asking me to do. So I'm going to submit to that. And if I'm wrong, I'll apologize when I get to heaven because I get to apologize every single Sunday at church and it's great. (laughs) Now, when we talk about Jesus and authority, I can't help but hear Matthew chapter 8, chapter 28. Now, the 11 disciples is after Jesus has been crucified, buried, and resurrected. And he says, go to the place where I've told you to go. And he's up in the Galilee. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So, by the way, great news. Because if you're not quite ready to submit under the authority of Jesus, here you go. You can worship and doubt. And that's totally fine. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You're asking the question, whose authority? Jesus is the authority. He doesn't need anybody else to let him do it. He doesn't need to ask permission from Rome. He doesn't need to ask permission from the chief priests. He doesn't need to ask permission from the people. He doesn't need to ask permission. He is God. And he acts and operates in that full authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. And then he gives instructions. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority has been given to him. And you and I get to follow him. So... Let's go. He's with us, and that's the authority that we operate under. He has given us that charge. We get to go. He is with us. And by the way, he really, really loves you. And you are always forgiven, and there's a thousand second chances, and the grace and the mercy and the ordering of the kingdom of God that he has set up, and the rejection of all of the other power systems in this world that have broken us down, that have caused us to have less empathy for one another, that have driven us to put up barriers to decide who's in and who's out, or who we can be friends with or who we cannot be friends with, how they voted, who they watch, who they listen to, what they do during their daily lives. Jesus has broken all of that down, and at the foot of the cross, We are all equal. All are one in Christ Jesus. We are all invited together to follow him, to be fully invested with the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit by God's grace and by mercy. You'll make a thousand and twenty-two mistakes just like I have today as well. 
And that's okay. Because it's under his authority and his power and it's his kingdom and he's at work. We can just relax and live in that good truth. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.